Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to Headspace, where we bring together three contributors from this month's edition of Prospect Magazine and ask them, what's the big idea? I'm Tom Clark and as January's edition of Prospect flies off the presses, we consider the American century, its birth in 1917, its death, which we reckon might be just about now, and oh, the hamburgers that sustained it in between. Bear with us and all will be revealed. To ponder the world order that was, I'm joined on the line by the esteemed political scientist Francis Fukuyama, the admired historian Adam Tooze, and the sparkling writer Wendell Stevenson, who's travelled the world and looked for signs of American superpower at every corner. Greetings to you all and let us begin, Adam, at the beginning, because you pinpoint the birth of the American century with some precision to 1917. Do tell us why. Well, it's the moment at which uh, the history of Europe, at that point the power centre of the world, begins to spin and revolve around the United States. In some sense, we're, you could argue that that began already slightly earlier in World War I. November 1916 is the first uh, American presidential election, which is watched with really bated breath by the entire world. And Wilson's narrow victory sends shockwaves through the European powers locked in World War I. It's this, I think, change, the fact that America moves to the absolute dead centre of global power politics that, for me, marks this as the transition. You have to remember that as recently as the 1890s, the early 1890s, none of the European powers dignified Washington, D.C. with a full embassy. 25 years later, literally the outcome of World War I seems to pivot on a few 10,000 voters in California. And I think at that moment, we really enter the world which we're still living with now, though perhaps in its phase of decomposition. Francis, um, do you agree with him that 1917 is as good a date as any to say when it all began? Well, it's certainly a good date because it does, as Adam says, launch... uh, America into global politics, uh, I think that it really took another generation for Americans to make up their mind whether they really wanted to do this. Adam says that in his article. After the um, inclusion of Versailles, uh, there was a rejection by the Senate of the League of Nations, and then the United States goes back into an isolationist phase, and it's really not until the conclusion of the Second World War that uh, you get a cementing of the consensus. And even after the Second World War, there's still a struggle. And I think it required some extraordinary leadership on the part of the Truman administration to create the structures that then led to America's you know, multi-generational involvement in international politics. But certainly 1917 is an important uh, turning point, particularly if you look at the economics behind it. 
Wendell, um, I heard it said once that um, when Winston Churchill, still in his dressing gown, was told about Pearl Harbour, he turned around and said, so we have won after all. Now, I don't know if that's right, but if it is right, that means that by 1941, there was no argument about whose century it was. Um, no, I mean, I think when, when the Americans came into the war on the side of the Allies, particularly in the European theatre, just the might of that economy tipped the balance. It was an extraordinary thing. The Soviet army wouldn't, that arguably actually won the war on the ground wouldn't have been able to fight without the kind of trucks and the enormous amount of materiel that was going through, American trucks, essentially. Before that, they were pretty much, you know, horse-drawn artillery pieces. When the Germans would overrun trenches and find packages, food packages, sent from American wives to the GIs fighting in Western Europe and discover that they were sending cake and clothes and socks and undergrad. They were like, how can we defeat this? They're airlifting cake. Charlie you know, Chaplin children. films, is that right? No, not I don't, I'm trying to remember now the, the, the source of this, whether it was the Battle of the Bulge or um, The Longest Day, but in one of these kind of, mm. you know, 1950s, 1960s sort of reruns of the Western Front, there's this kind of idea that it was just overwhelming, that economic might was overwhelming and obvious as it was to Churchill and I think everybody else. Adam, Frank makes a good point, doesn't he, about America might have been dominant, but it was a very kind of hesitant giant a sort of on-off giant between 1917 and 1941. Oh, yes, he absolutely does. Uh, and in some sense, this is another one of the kind of haunting questions that we face today. Uh, I mean, the situation that I'm diagnosing is emerging and that contemporaries saw emerging in the course of World War I is a sort of a, a de facto a dependence of the world balance on America's decisions. And then, um, as we know, uh, the American political class and the American electorate pull back from the responsibilities that implies. But the problem, of course, is the de facto dependence remains. And this is, this is one of the situations that we confront today. Um, the uh, European economy uh, survived the financial crisis of 2008 only because of truly spectacular levels of American liquidity existence from the Fed, which had absolutely no legitimacy within the American political system, and if they had been brought to discussion in Congress, would almost certainly have been vetoed. Likewise, European security at this point continues to hinge on NATO, because Germany, despite its you know, rigid adherence to Eurozone rules about fiscal spending, consistently underspends its NATO commitment. Um, and so we have at the current moment, I think, for all our common diagnosis of a political crisis, a continued de facto dependence of key elements of the global order on American power. And that imbalance is one of the striking things about the interwar period and one of the striking things, I think, about the present. Frank, um, one of the things I really liked in Adam's essay was this point about just how contingent it was that America sort of fell into this war, if you like, because of things people were doing in Berlin where they decided to let their U-boats out in early 1917. And at the start of 1917, Woodrow Wilson was after uh, leading the world, but leading the world in a very different, less belligerent way as a kind of broker of a peace without victors. Do you think it's interesting or even possible to uh, to sort of rerun the last hundred years with what would have happened if uh, Germany hadn't goaded America into the First World War? Well, of course, I think history is composed both of structural forces that create uniformities and then a lot of human agency in which individual leaders make decisions that 
really changed things tremendously. My favorite one is General von Kluck in the First Battle of the Marne in 1914. He was the German general that basically lost his nerve at a certain point and allowed the lines to freeze. Now, if he had been a little bit more resolute, the Germans could have broken through to Paris. Uh, the war could have ended by August 1914, and then everything that flowed from it, <laughs> Bolshevism, decolonization, World War II, you know, much of that would have been very different. So uh, there is contingency, and I think there continues to be contingency. I think that uh, although you have these large economic forces like globalization and then the reaction to it that set the stage uh, in many respects, especially in foreign policy, uh, a lot of decisions by individual leaders uh, really continue to make a difference. For example, at the end of the Vietnam War, you had a similar uh, moment in the United States where there is a resurgent view that America should come home. That was George McGovern's uh, campaign cry uh, in the 72 election. And uh, after uh, the 1980s, you had the election of Ronald Reagan, who happened to be a very internationalist Republican. And I think he managed to turn American public opinion around. And so America re-engaged with the world. But that didn't have to happen. Uh, and I think under a very different kind of leader right now, that same uh, party is actually returning to its isolationist roots. Uh, so I think there's a lot of malleability in the way that uh, democratic publics think about uh, international relations. I'm listening to this very interestedly and and wondering, you know, America um, has had a sort of push-me-pull relationship and a hesitancy and ambivalence about being the world's global leader, about being the world's policeman. Do you guys see any correlation between either world economics or an, eco an American domestic economic situation and how willing they are to get involved internationally? Well, I think it's pretty clear that America benefited overall from the kind of liberal globalized world order that it created from the, you know, from the 1945 on. It permitted a lot of free riding by its friends and allies in NATO with the Europeans not paying their share and also in economics. We ran these big trade deficits in order that Japan and South Korea could develop uh, rapidly as allies in the Cold War. But this did have negative social consequences in the United States. The American working class, I think, uh, did not benefit uh, from all of this economic growth. And we ended up with a kind of uh, inequality that we've been noting for the last uh, decade or so. Uh, and that's created this political reaction that I think is, you know, in, in some sense, not just understandable, but overdue. Let's just talk about um, an icon uh, of the uh, liberal economic order that Frank is talking about uh, just there. Because 20 years or so into the American century, as it wasn't yet called, but we're as, as we're defining it, in 1937, the McDonald's brothers opened their first restaurant. Ten years later came the Ford-style fast food production line, and ten years after that, the great mushrooming of the chain began in earnest, um, Wendell. Um, and you seem to think we can learn something about America, the American empire, as some people might call it, from the history of McDonald's. Well, it's interesting. Um, the day after Trump was elected, you, Tom, had asked me somewhat out of the blue to go and see a screening of a biopic of the McDonald's founder, Ray Kroc, called The Founder. 
so I found myself with that sort of slightly ear-ringing shock post-election result, um, sitting in a darkened screening room, watching this sort of um, what began as a rather standard American biopic, a slightly hagiographic example of the businessman with the great idea, Ray Kroc, who found the McDonald's brothers who had implemented this great speedy service and, and had these, this great hamburger product and a single restaurant in San Bernardino in California. And he took one look at the kind of giant queue outside and its popularity and said, this has to go national. This has to, we have to have golden arches from sea to shining sea. And he persuaded the McDonald's brothers to let him be their franchise manager. And he then rolled out the McDonald's as we know it um, with the, the brand, the franchise mechanism. He created the economic model and ultimately the, became CEO of the McDonald's Corporation, bought out the McDonald's brothers, um, and then failed to um, deliver on a handshake promise to give them a, a, a percentage of future profits. So the first half of the movie was very kind of social Darwinian, sort of Trumpian, self-made economics. You know, I've got the big idea, I'm gonna make it happen. It's about determination and dog eat dog and, and the kind of Gordon Gecko, greed is good, make it bigger, enterprise, expansion, and business. You know, the sort of ideals that underpinned um, the American frontier, the American century, the American experiment. Um, and that we see the sort of tropes that we see repeated in Hollywood movies. The second half of the movie, however, is kind of the counterpoint to that, the underside of capitalism. Ray Kroc, you know, rather jimmies the McDonald's brothers out of their own business, ultimately puts their original restaurant out of business and takes over in a way that is, if not strictly illegal, you know, makes you squirm in your seat as you're watching it. Um, so this is the sort of corporate underbelly. And as I was watching it, I was thinking, you know, the kind of resonances and ironies and confluences between popularity and populism, between myth-making. Some of these ideas seem to be tied up in the, in the Trump victory. Francis, um, one thing uh, that uh, Wendell mentions in the piece is this idea of Thomas Friedman's that got a lot of publicity about no two countries with a McDonald's have ever um, gone to war with each other, which Wendell points out wasn't quite true when he wrote it, but sure as hell isn't true now. I'm interested in, in your reaction to it because, you know, when you were writing famously about the end of history a generation or so ago, I imagine that sort of argument would have seemed more plausible than it does today, that, that, that integrated global capitalism uh, would uh, work as a system and work rather more harmoniously than we're now seeing. So the theory behind that McDonald's uh, assertion of Tom Friedman's is a little bit more complicated. Uh, I think that what he was trying to argue was that to have a McDonald's, you had to have a certain uh, developed market economy uh, if you pass a certain threshold of wealth, there is, uh, you know, a fair amount of empirical data that your likelihood of being a consolidated democracy is much higher, uh, and that the general experience is that democracies don't go to war with each other. Now, what's happened, of course, is that McDonald's have been set up in a lot of very low-income countries, and so that's not really a very good indicator of whether you're, a con you know, whether you're rich or not. But the more uh, important challenge to the theory is really China. Uh, China mm. has now uh, really exceeded the level of per capita income that most social scientists had set as the point at which you develop a large enough middle class and 
educated population that you have increasing demands for political participation. Uh, and that simply hasn't happened. As far as anyone can tell, the middle class in China seems to be pretty content under the current um, authoritarian uh, system. Uh, and of course, Singapore is at a, you know, it, it has a per capita income that's higher than the States. Uh, and yet it remains a, uh, you know, a, a semi-authoritarian uh, country. So I think that's really where the the problem in the theory lies, is that connection between wealth and democracy uh, seems to be violated by these Asian countries that have gotten very rich without opening up their political systems. Whether this continues to be true, that's another story, because I actually think that there's a lot of weaknesses in the sustainability of both the economic and the political models in China. But, you know, we'll we'll have to see. Adam, I don't know if you're a, a, a McDonald's um, fan or, or not, but um, as a historian, I'm sure you'll be aware that there were some people on the cusp of 1914, 1917, who thought the world economy was so integrated that there couldn't be a big war in the way that then there was. Does that um, precedent frighten you? Uh, I first wanted to say that when I was reading Wendell's fantastic essay, I, I was vividly reminded of my childhood in West Germany, growing up in Heidelberg in the early 70s. Even there, as you know, a central element of the American power system, McDonald's only arrived in 73 or 74. And it was precisely the event. Hamburgers came late described. to Hamburg. Yeah, I mean, really, it was a, and it was precisely that event. We used to travel transatlantically, and I had encountered the Big Mac in the United States, and it was a defining moment of my childhood when it finally arrived in Europe. And it did precisely come with this package of air conditioning and a certain sort of American sense of comfort that was distinctly alien and yet, and you know, immediately appealing. On the on the broader issue of of affluence and interconnection and war, I mean, I think there are a series of complexities. I mean, I think the Norman Angle's famous prediction that that war would be unlikely before 1914 is widely misunderstood because the argument isn't that it's impossible. The argument is that it's incredibly expensive. And furthermore, that conquest itself um, in a system of massive interconnection when rich countries which are tightly interconnected with each other under the premises of liberal international law, which Angle was an exponent of, is not actually profitable because... It doesn't really matter very much whether Germany owns Belgium or not because the Germans can trade with the Belgians and buy Belgian coal or Belgian chocolate as much as they like. There's really no reason to possess it. So Angle's theory was not, as it were, that war was impossible, but that in some senses it was unnecessary for the purposes of enrichment. And if you did engage in it, it would be hugely expensive. And all that 1914 showed is... First of all, that people wanted to go to war anyway. Uh, in some senses that he was correct, that the costs were going to be enormous. The Belgian economy becomes the object of American relief. One of an, Another way in which America enters the century is by way of becoming, through Herbert Hoover, the great source of aid. And then thirdly, what it demonstrates is the incredible protean capacity of modern states to take all that economic logic and cost on the chin and say, hell, well, whatever, what that means we're going to have to do is build a new governmental apparatus that'll do something we've never done before, which is to organize a national economy for the national project of war in a sustained way. And it turns out that that may not be as efficient as optimally organized market economies, but it's certainly viable as a model. 
I'm with Francis. I mean, I think there's a, there's a fundamental reason and logic to that liberal model, which should not be abandoned simply because in various instances we can see that it is not immediately operative, because generally speaking, what that points to is a series of countervailing forces or creative responses on the part of historical agents, which have rendered that basic liberal logic inoperative. But it continues, as it were, in the background to work. Well, the reason, of course, why a lot of people are speculating quite um, excitedly about whether it's going to continue to work, whether in matters of war and peace or whether in terms of international trade and all the rest of it is because of the election of a certain Donald J. Um, Trump. Um, we're seeing him, many of us in Europe, as a kind of big and destructive figure suddenly brought onto the stage. But Francis, in your essay, you're keen to highlight his um, emergence less as a, um, a cause of a shake-up of the world order, but more as a consequence of what's wrong in the American political system. Well, that's right. I think that there's two background conditions to the election of 2016. The first is that American democracy is really not working well. We've had six years of virtual paralysis in the US government where Congress has not been able to pass a, a budget under regular order, a backlog of things like appointing uh, assistant secretaries to uh, executive branch agencies, which uh, are held up for similar reasons. and. This leads to a situation I've labeled vetocracy, meaning rule by veto, where our check and balance system uh, makes it actually impossible to come to decisions. And I think, furthermore, the capture of the American government by very powerful interest groups, I think, is behind the insurgencies of both Trump and Bernie Sanders. There's a feeling that the democracy doesn't actually represent the American people very well. The second you know, issue is really inequality. And I think one thing the election has done is to shape that perception. It's not simply about African Americans or recent immigrants. It's also about the, you know, the white working class mm. that suffered the industrialization uh, and that they're not represented well by either party. They're angry about that. And I think Trump was just a brilliant political entrepreneur that understood that this opening was posed by these two facts of political dysfunction and inequality, and he seized uh, on both of them, and here we are. Wendell, um, McDonald is one of many icons you could choose of the American good life, people getting richer and being able to afford to eat out in cheap but clean restaurants, for example. And yet, as Frank says, the income statistics suggest that particularly for men, wages have now been stuck for one or two generations. Um, what do you think that's doing to the uh, American dream, as it used to be understood? Um, well, it's undermining it. Um, but it's not clear that it's undermining it in the popular culture. And that's what was curious to me about the movie and that the, the ambivalence of the second half of the movie, the ambivalence about the underbelly, the responsibilities of capitalism for that segment of the population and particularly what happens when capitalism shudders or fails or market forces you know, create economic pain and stagnation in certain areas, particularly in ge geographical areas in, in the US. What was curious to me thinking about the movie and thinking about McDonald's and thinking about Trump and how all these kind of things of popularity and populism and perception came together was to understand where is the kind of cultural, if, if the political response 
to this isn't working for me. Is I want an outsider to shake things up in Washington was Donald Trump. Where is the cultural response that somehow echoes and describes and illustrates the sort of economic pain and frustration of that class that elected him? And in that, you know, is the irony that the McDonald story in some ways embodies. In one way, it's, you know, convenient and yummy, and another way, it's bad for you. Mm. In one way, it's a great American, you know, aspirational element of soft power in the world. In the other side, it's become a sort of emblem of American political and economic hegemony. <laughs> the question is really, you know, if, if Trump could sell himself, you know, a bit like a sort of mouth-watering photograph of a Big Mac, as mm. he once actually sold... Yeah, he's got no doubts advert. about McDonald's, um, has he? It's just a pure good for him. You know, where is the the other side of the argument that? But yes, he's you know he's also you know a capitalist who does not treat his workers very well. Who the, the, you know exactly that constituency which he wants to um, represent, who voted for him, who looked to him for shaking things up, and yet he's he doesn't seem to be their kind of natural champion. Adam, um, I wonder, do you think we're really at a point now where? Um, the whole business of liberal democracy is coming into question in a way that it hasn't done for um, as long as I can remember, certainly. Well, I think I was very struck reading Francis's essay by the echo at the very end of his piece of a central theme in my piece, which is really the whole question of how liberal democracy came to be a compound in the first place. Uh, Because if you think about 19th century political theory, Um, where the notion of liberalism was first sort of consolidated and democracy, which of course goes back uh, far deeper than that, they thought of as basically being fundamentally in tension with each other because democracy aspires to represent the people. And liberalism fundamentally is a doctrine of rights and the protection of individuals and restraint and constitutionalism, a doctrine perhaps of freedoms and rights rather than that of the representation of the people. And, and it's really in World War I, in the uh, superheated ideological cauldron of World War I, that those two things, which are very different from each other, get sort of hammered together into a compound. And then you add republicanism on top of that, which is a... So you end up with a sort of liberal democratic republicanism as the common denominator of what we take to be political modernity. And that got us through the 20th century, if you add in a kind of an element of social democracy as well, which again, the 19th century would have thought of as fundamentally at odds with what uh, liberalism was about. Um, That was the kind of brew that we took as the default standard that, that defined the West as opposed to other places. And I think one of the things we may be seeing is is that that is fraying in really quite a dramatic way that on the one hand we have elements of populism um, which are asserting themselves. On the other hand we have very robust and very deeply institutionalised defence of property rights um, you know, through what is now increasingly just labelled as neoliberalism. Which, and there will be very interesting, I think, tensions between the institutions that have hardened around the defence of freedoms and individualism on the one hand and this undoubted kind of moment of, of a kind of populist, demotic uh, notion asserting itself. So in a sense, I almost felt one could read the hamburgers onto this as well and that they're a kind of demotic food that 
clashes with you know rather more refined notions of the development of individualism and in some sense if they've tried to square the circle by adding dietary labels at least in the united states you can now you're now empowered as a free individual to make the sensible bourgeois choice not to eat something that's poisonous for you there's also a kind of a flip side in the sense that mcdonald's has been very good at being a global brand but also localizing its menu so, you know, there's all sorts of, you know, chicken shawarma and, and local dishes according to um, their markets in India and China and the Middle East of different spicing and, 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 and different sandwiches. So in a funny kind of way, they're kind of local and global at the same time. So I think that's what we may be seeing is not a sort of blanket crisis, but the decomposition of something that was really more heterogeneous than we ever really recognized. Actually, if you look beyond the United States, uh, you see this in a much more acute form. So two of the leaders uh, in this movement towards populism are Hungary and uh, Russia. And Viktor Orban, the prime minister of Hungary, made this very explicit a couple of years ago in a speech in Romania in which he said that uh, what we're aiming for is illiberal democracy, that uh, he enjoys at least a very solid plurality of voters uh, uh, Vladimir Putin, you know, is an extremely popular president, but both of them have been very active in eroding uh, liberal rule of law in terms of media freedom, in terms of ability of civil society to operate uh, freely, in terms of political opposition. Uh, and so that, in a way, points to this threat that, that democracy itself poses to the liberal side of liberal democracy. Frank, can I just push you finally on 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 this exact question of the of the the what you call talk about um, the democratic part of uh, liberal democracy having its revenge on the on the liberal part there because it's your theme it's a theme in what Adam writes. There's another piece in the new issue by the political scientist from Cambridge, Chris Bickerton, who's saying this is happening in European state after European state. And um, I, I just wanted to ask you, as the person who a generation ago was perhaps the most optimistic about how uh, liberal democracy was winning out, um, uh, do you now feel that um, it really is um, perhaps in mortal danger? Oh, yeah, definitely. I think we're at a very critical moment right now. We could gather our forces and defend the liberal order, and it could be that you know these recent elections are just... Uh, like stock market correction. Russia and China as authoritarian models have deep problems uh, in sustainability. On the other hand, agency still matters. Political choices made by leaders and by voting public still uh, make a great deal of difference. And I think you could see, especially with the United States, since its power has been so critical to maintaining both the economic and the political versions of global liberalism, if it walks away from that role, then a lot of the structure could then uh, start to collapse. Thank you very much, Francis. Whether or not time is up for the American century, I'm afraid time is very much up for Headspace just now. So my thanks to Francis Fukuyama, to Adam Tooze and to Wendell Stevenson. The January edition of Prospect magazine features all three of their essays and more besides, including from Chris Bickerton, who I mentioned, talking about very similar trends of the uncoupling of liberalism from democracy across the European continent and also some very different pieces 
places, like Anna Blundy, who puts Samuel Pepys on the couch. That's in the shops now. If it's too cold for you to venture outside, you can, of course, go to prospectmagazine.co.uk and hit subscribe. You know you want to. And even if you don't, for some insane reason, it's the best of gifts for colleagues, friends and for family this Christmas. I'm Tom Clark. The producer was Matt Hill at Rethink Audio. And thank you very much to all of you for listening. Until next time, goodbye. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.